This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. As of this recording, the FDA about to approve, at least we're pretty sure, Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine. The emergency use authorization first doses set to be shipped this weekend. Healthcare professionals the first to get the shots. But we are still a long way before we can get back to normal. Now, we already have some possible allergic reactions to the vaccine in Great Britain. We'll look into whether there could be other possible side effects. Rural America hit hard by the virus will look into the challenges doctors face in less populated areas. And kids, they're reporting another big problem with remote learning. Your boss has more control over what you do, where you go, who you see during this pandemic holiday season. Let's start with the FDA and the vaccine. Dr. Anand Parekh is the chief medical officer of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Doctor, how confident should we all be that this vaccine is something we should all get? I feel fairly confident. Uh, Today, the advisory committee uh, to the FDA will vote. That's an independent group. So these are scientists, uh, healthcare professionals, vaccine experts. Um, So they're they're not part of the government, but serving in an advisory role. I think the FDA will take that recommendation. Uh, I think the FDA will act pretty quickly uh, in terms of approval. It's done already a lot of the background work. uh, And then I think you're going to see distribution and administration of the vaccine uh, pretty soon. But you're absolutely right. In terms of the general public, it it comes down to trust at the end of the day. And to really conquer any vaccine hesitancy, you need to generate trust. And that's why I think communication uh, is going to be so important, uh, communicating to the American public um, that although um, the timeline for vaccine development Uh, was so quick, a real scientific breakthrough, uh, that in fact, no corners were cut. And in fact, um, this has been looked at uh, uh, now by by many, many scientists. Tens of thousands of people have received the vaccine. uh, And I think assuring the American public uh, that it's a safe vaccine, it's an effective vaccine, um, and ensuring that they understand that, that for some people, uh, who receive the vaccine the first day or two, they may have flu-like symptoms. I mean, it, it's that really specificity that I think is going to be really, really important. Uh, and at the end of the day, again, I think it's all about trust. So I think it's it's your local healthcare professional uh, and, and, and local uh, members of your community that can help build that trust as well. So probably a good thing then that people are going to hear some sound bites coming out of the meeting, and, and we've played them already, you know, Here's my list of questions for you guys and some of the doctors with that crucial eye looking at this. Although we do expect, you know, approval to be made, it's it's that trust building with the public that, yeah, we didn't just rubber stamp this thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of people looking at this and, and, and everyone should be looking at it. I think I think that the data that is being presented to the advisory committee that the FDA has should be made public. Um, I think that builds trust. Transparency absolutely builds trust. Uh, but once we see that, and I'm confident when we see that, um, we'll see uh, uh, indications again that this is a safe and effective uh, uh, vaccine. Uh, and the same thing will need to happen next week when um, exactly one week from now, the FDA will look at the Moderna vaccine. And it'll be the same situation. We'll want to see that transparent data. Uh, but that will make it ju- that much easier for healthcare professionals like myself or uh, or government officials uh, to really get up at the podium uh, and say, 
you know, we have something that we can trust. And, and more importantly, uh, it'll be something that that your own personal healthcare professional uh, or your uh, or your colleague or your community um, uh, member uh, will will be able to uh, to say that hey, this is something that's important, uh, and, and we should all get a, a vaccine. Dr. Anand Parekh, Chief Medical Officer, Bipartisan Policy Center. Britain issued a warning that people who suffer severe allergic reactions should avoid the Pfizer vaccine. Now, that's because of a couple of bad reactions after the vaccine was given. Doctors have said the trials show the vaccines are safe, but we'll see if any unexpected side effects pop up when more people get vaccinated when you scale it all the way up. Dr. Warner Green, director of the Gladstone Institute of Virology in San Francisco. So, doctor, to the question of concern, how concerned should people be? This is still an experimental vaccine. Well, I would say first, uh, to put things in perspective, we have been looking down the the barrel of a pandemic that has been the worst the world has seen in 100 years. And these vaccines are our passport back to normality. So yes, uh, the we want to be sure that they're effective, and we also want to be equally sure that they're safe. So far, through two months of testing uh, of safety, uh, the vaccines do appear uh, quite safe. but. Normally, a vaccine would go through a much longer period of evaluation. These are vaccines that have been developed in six months, as opposed to most vaccines taking six to 10 years to be approved. So um, we, we are moving at, at light speed, and we're looking at distribution at warp speed. Um, but so far, we know that these vaccines, what we've seen so far is that they're quite safe. What do you watch for, though, as we scale it up? Because you're bound to find some things and some people when you go to this massive scale, right? There were there were the allergic reactions in England, but those those couple people were prone to allergic reactions. So we can put that in the little logbook. Right. And most of the, the side effects of the vaccines, it's going to be things like fatigue, sore shoulder at the site of injection, uh, mild fever, joint pain. Uh, those are kind of the expected uh, uh, vaccine side effects. And those generally are gone within 24 to 36 hours and can be usually managed with Tylenol or, or other uh, minor analgesics. Uh, the longer, the, the bigger kind of issues that one is on the lookout for are kind of autoimmune neurological um, uh, type of uh, uh, complications of one, for example, is what's called the Guillain-Barre syndrome, an ascending form of, of, of neural damage. The um, uh, in the AstraZeneca trial, they had one. They had a pause in their trial due to one episode of transverse myelitis, which again is a kind of an immune attack upon the the spinal cord. Uh, but it was not definitely linked to the vaccine, and so the trial recommenced. Um, but those are the kinds of things that uh, that you're on the lookout for in the long term. All right, but, in, but general, I'm in sorry. General, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, but again, in 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 looking uh, and watching the uh, committee hearing this morning, uh, a number of doctors raised some issues about how the trial itself was conducted. Because, as you know, half the participants got the vaccine, half the participants got just salt water saline as a placebo, and there was some concern that a lot of the people who got the placebo because of the absence of any discernible, you know, adverse effects may have figured out, along with the researchers, who got the vaccine, who didn't, and that might have had some sway over behavior. 
Well, uh, I guess what you're saying, it was not a perfectly designed double-blind uh, trial. I know that some of these trials actually incorporate a different vaccine as, as the placebo, uh, in contrast to, uh, to the SARS-CoV-2 uh, component. Uh, but my, the point I wanted to make is that most of the side effects of the vaccines, of vaccines, will occur within the two-month period of observation that we've seen. So that's that's a very reasonable period of safety to to evaluate. Now, sure, we want to look longer, but almost most of the of the complications of vaccine would be evident within the first two months after vaccination. Dr. Warner Green directs the Gladstone Institutes of Virology in San Francisco. The virus thrives in heavily populated areas of so many people living near one another and going to all of the same places. Hospitals have been struggling to keep up in big cities, but now they're having a hard time in the rural parts of the country as well. Some small towns having trouble trying to implement mask mandates, other restrictions due to pushback. Alan Morgan is the CEO of the National Rural Health Association. So Alan Medical Centers in smaller areas, they run a big risk of getting overrun. And a lot of these places, they're they're behind the eight ball. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the situation is unfortunately in, in hundreds of small towns all across the U.S., you have a disproportionate share of elderly, low-income individuals, many with multiple chronic health care issues in these small towns with small hospitals that are designed for primary care. They're, they were never designed to deal with a global pandemic. So how are they going to handle it since uh, in many of these towns, there isn't a really large, let's say, you know, university medical center nearby. So what do they do? Well, for more than half the nation's rural hospitals, about 1,300 of them, you're, you're talking about facilities with 25 or fewer inpatient beds. On average, they have one to two ventilators on staff, and, and the majority of them don't have an ICU room. They have a, a dedicated room that's, hot, that's hardwired to the nurse's station. Again, so what they're doing is they're handling their patient load the best that they can, and then transferring those patients once they need ICU care. But the problem of course being is uh, they could do that in the summer when we had hot spots. When every place is a hot spot, the ability to transfer uh, just is eliminated. And so that's the crisis that we all want to avoid, but we're facing right now. What about staffing levels? Obviously there's fewer nurses and if you get some of them sick, then you've got a real problem because there's, there's, there's not a lot of people to work. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, when you talk about rural America, rural America is a study in workforce shortage. And when you have your uh, a couple of uh, primary care physicians, uh, a nurse practitioner, a couple other nurses knocked offline because they're COVID positive, you've already entered into a crisis mode. I mean, people need to realize there just is not the flexibility in these small towns, small facilities that you have in urban sites. But here's one thing I guess I don't get. I was reading this morning that in a lot of these small, more rural areas, there is still enormous opposition to wearing masks, even though, unlike a few months ago, now people have neighbors, relatives who have gotten sick, died from COVID. The hospitals, as we've just been talking about, just overflowing to capacity, not being able. And yet they still say, no, 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 no masks for me. How is that happening? I don't get it. 
Yeah, it, it's hard to fathom. I got to tell you, I back in October was out in Missouri and Kansas visiting some of our member sites. And I was I was literally dumbfounded at that time because in those communities, small towns, there, there just was no mask wearing. Um, but checking back for my members, that was before they had surges. And checking back for our members, I guess the good news is uh, once you start seeing family and friends die from this in these small communities, and everyone knows everyone, that adherence to public safety measures, it, it has an uptick effect. But the problem is it, it, we, these are avoidable deaths. So the more you can have this happen on the front end before it gets bad is what we want to see happen. Shouldn't there be, you know, in a tiny town, more trust in your, your local mayor because maybe you know the guy? Whereas here, you could just be like, oh, Garcetti's got us on lockdown again. I don't like him, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's tough. One of the one of the underlying themes of rural America is the independence, you know, and you're living in a small town. It, you, you have that independent streak and it's, it's part of the culture of rural America. But again, I go back to this. Everyone knows everyone. That's the good point in a rural town. The bad point is you actually do uh, firsthand know people and see what they're facing once they get put into that hospital and facility. So the polls are still showing that a sizable amount of Americans say they they are not ready to get a vaccine when and if the uh, FDA gives emergency approval, as it it might in the next, uh, actually in the next few minutes, possibly, uh, for the Pfizer one. Uh, What's your your sort of take of the temperature of rural America? Are they going to line up, roll up their sleeves and get the jab? Or are they going to go like they did with masks? No vaccine for me. Yeah, it's going to be a heavy lift. I just saw data this morning, national data, and not surprisingly in a rural context, um, the 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 willingness to to accept a vaccine is not as high as what we need, but the real problem I think right now is in the in like you said within the next 72 hours hopefully we get this out to the rural providers themselves and got to be on the front line of receiving this. Um, they can't be knocked offline because they become COVID positive, and it's hopeful once they see trusted leaders within the community take this vaccine. Hope is that the communities at large will buy into this. Do you worry about distribution problems? I mean, the complications that come with at least the Pfizer vaccine having to be kept so cold. Maybe it's going to be easier if later on down the line we've got, you know, AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson, which is, you know, a single dose in some cases or not with the temperature restrictions in others, that maybe those will go and, and be easier to use out in some of these spots. I have significant concerns about this, and I had the opportunity to ask Dr. Redfield, the CDC director, this very question on Friday about that. And his response was accurate. Each one of the states are charged with distribution. So you have 50 different plans for making this happen. And we don't know the details of all those plans. And let's be honest, it's going to be much easier to vaccinate in large urban hubs. We've got to push this vaccine out to these rural communities. We can't have doctors driving eight hours in in California to take a day off work to go get vaccinated, then drive back. That's just not a solution. All right. Alan Morgan, CEO, National Rural Health Association. Coming up after this short break, kids are having a hard time seeing through remote learning. Concerns have been raised for a while about the problems with remote learning and how kids are much better off in a classroom. Now we're seeing another problem. Yeah, kids doing the remote learning, all that screen time, because, you know, afterwards they'll watch TV or play video games or stare at their phone. Vision issues from sitting in front of screens all day. Michael Robb, Senior Director of Research at Common Sense Media. So, Michael, we are all staring at things all day long, and there is some concern here. 
Yeah, I, I do the same thing, actually. Um, I think one of the things that parents need to think about, though, is that not all screen time is equal. And to treat it as if everything that a kid does uh, on their computer or iPhone or on the TV is all the same uh, is a mistake. So we shouldn't be lumping together, for example, you know, what they're doing in the classroom online with their video game play, with their FaceTiming, with other kinds of activities, because um, it just doesn't make sense. Some of those activities are high quality, some are guilty pleasure. And what we do on the screens and how we do them is much more important than the just the time spent. But but there seems to be two separate issues here, right? I mean, one, there's the the cognitive disturbance, if you will, excuse me, if you will, of your kids watching and being glued to a, a screen for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Uh, <laughs> and then there's also the physical, perhaps, uh, strain on their eyesight, because as I understand this particular report, what we're talking about is is actual, I guess, eye strain from just watching mm-hmm. a screen all the time. Uh, yeah. So if you have a child who is, you know, doing so much viewing of their iPhone or their computer, such that it's leading to either discomfort or fatigue or blurred vision or headaches or dry eyes, you know, these are all symptoms of eye strain, and that's a really good clue to your body that's a good time to like get up and do something else to focus your eyes on something in the distance for some significant amount of time. Otherwise, just take a break. Um, You know, I don't think there's really good long-term, there's evidence that there's long-term damage to eyes, but certainly there are some short-term problems that can be alleviated by by getting up and doing something else. For parents worried about kids spending too much time um, looking at screens, what do you do? I mean, I can plan maybe activities for a couple days or maybe some part of the weekend, but if a parent's trying to do their job and the kid's at school and then they're just going to play video games, there's not a lot to go out and do right now. So how do you have that discussion? Now, this is a tough time to be a parent. And one of the things I I tell parents a lot right now is, number one, just, just don't feel guilty, right? We are living through a massive cultural shock and families have enough stress to deal with counting screen minutes should be pretty low on the list of concerns for any of us. But, you know, if you are concerned, think more about the things that we know are good for kids, right? That don't involve screens. So we have 100 years of child development research on things like the importance of sleep, making sure that kids get um, enough sleep, that they're getting healthy nutrition, that they're getting enough exercise and and physical activity, that they're reading, that they're doing their their homework and their um, academic activities. And if they're doing all of these other things that we know are good for their development, then you don't have to worry so much about counting every single screen minute. But what happens when the pandemic is over and it eventually will be over? Um, how do you then wean these kids that have become so used to spending their quality time, and I'm putting quality in quotes, <laughs> their quality time with their screens, how do you wean them away from that and get them turned on by actual, I don't know, other humans? Yeah, it's, it's definitely um, a balance that you want to strike, right? And that can be difficult. And instead of, you know, worrying about like, oh my God, my kid just watched TV for six hours today, we should try to aim for a balance for throughout the week. So, you know, when you're talking about like weaning kids off of screens, like you are also simultaneously trying to put them onto other activities that they know and they enjoy. Um, but again, looking for a balance throughout the week. So, you know, do they still have a lot of screen time? Maybe, right? But also be finding time to be outside, to be active, you know, indoors or outdoors with or without screens, to be talking to friends and family, whether that's on the phone, on social media, or on video chat. And then when you are using media, 
making sure that you're using it in high quality ways because it's very easy to just kind of slip into watching a lot of you know terrible content um, or play a lot of terrible video games uh, you know for kids but there's lots of high quality stuff out there and there are resources like common sense media out there that can be used to help find good quality content and one thing that parents can also do to improve the quality of that time that their kids do spend on media is to talk to their kids about it just make sure that's part of an interactive uh, experience where parents have the opportunity to just chat with their kids about what it is that they're seeing and hearing when they are using technology. Michael Robb, Senior Director of Research, Common Sense Media. Can your boss tell you not to host a Christmas celebration? Turns out, maybe, pretty much, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Companies of wide latitude during a pandemic and how they can control what workers do in their off hours. You know, different laws, different states, but if you break the rules, they can discipline you in a lot of cases. Rachel Kahn, labor and employment attorney for the Nixon Peabody Law Firm in San Francisco. So, Rachel, companies telling people not to go to gatherings, not to travel over the holidays? Well, we certainly see concern from employers who, you know, have to legally maintain a safe and, and healthful workplace for their employees. And so we certainly see employers having this dilemma where they're trying to provide a safe workplace, but you know how do they control that? And particularly in a time where there is a surge of cases happening, and there's been um, there's advisories here in California for people to not uh, do domestic travel. So employers are trying to figure out where's the line where. You know, how do I keep my my employees safe and my workplace safe, and how far do I go um, in 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 regulating what my employees are doing? So those are certainly thoughts that we have employers are having right now, um, and we we see a wide range of what employers are actually um, implementing. Yeah. So so what what do you think the line is? I mean, can the boss say there is a travel ban? Everyone just stay with your own family in your house. You're not going anywhere. Or is this like you send out the email reminding everybody of California's uh, restrictions and saying we expect you to follow these? So certainly, um, you know, if there is a legal mandate about um, not being able to travel, or if you travel, you have to quarantine. So something that we see similar in New York, um, employers can certainly say, we require our employees to uh, abide by the legal requirements. Now, when it's, it's not, when there isn't necessarily a mandate or if it's just an advisory, that can be a little bit more squishy. And so what we see there is a combination of either employers adopting what the advisory is and saying to folks, and typically it mirrors what we see the advisory say. So here in California, you know, there should be um, limits to non-essential travel. So employers saying, if you're going to do that, you have to quarantine because that is the, that is the advisory. But um, we're seeing not as much of employers saying, you can't um, travel to this place or that place. What, what actually does the law, I mean, let, let's confine it to California and not the whole country. What does the law actually say about this in this state? Yes. So the law is, is there's a little, there's multiple laws here that come into play. Again, one, we have occupational safety and health laws that require the employer to provide a safe workplace. However, we also have laws here that say an employer can't take an adverse action against an employee if they're doing something legal outside of the workplace. 
So if there is an advisory, then employee that is um, allows an employer to use that um, as a basis to say, I need to keep a safe workplace. So therefore I'm gonna adopt this advisory. But if there's no advisories um, and it makes it more difficult for an employer to say, you know, I'm going to restrict something that you're legally allowed to do. Let's say they say, okay, you, you can go, um, but you got to stay out for a few days until you get a negative test when you're back. Is that you using your vacation time? Can you push it to say, give me, give me a few sick days because I don't have as much vacation as I have sick days. What's the, or can they even just say, hey, this is unpaid time. Sorry, this is your decision. Uh, come back when you come back. Yeah, so that's a great question. So California recently has adopted a COVID sick leave law, and it's not going to imply to all employers, but if it does imply to you as an employer, if you exclude an employee out of the workplace for a COVID-related reason, then you're going to have to pay for that time. So that has been part of a consideration for employers that, let's say, I tell employees, if you decide to travel against the um, advisory that is out there and you are required to quarantine, do I now have to pay for that time? And can I, employer who maybe I'm already strapped um, because of pandemic, can I afford to pay for that time? And I've certainly had employers say, you know what, you know, we would love to tell our employees that they need to quarantine. We think that's safe, um, the safest protocol, but we can't pay for that time. And so we're not going to take that. We're not going to adopt that. Rachel, are we in danger, though, uh, of creating precedents such that when this, what we hope is indeed a once every 100 year event pandemic is over, that we may look back at some of this and go, maybe we shouldn't have gone there or there or there. You know, that's always a potential, but this is such an unprecedented time and employers are under such pressure to make sure that they're keeping a safe workplace that, you know, it, it's always possible that we look back and say, you know, that that was that was maybe over the line. But I think right now people are so focused on trying to, to keep a safe workplace. And that's why most employers, if they're going to adopt certain restrictions, are trying to take the approach of adopting what an advisory from public health says. So that way they at least are guided by public health experts. Rachel Kahn, attorney in the Labor and Employment Group, Nixon Peabody Firm. The economic impacts of the recession are now leading to more crime. Retail stores, security experts, police departments across the U.S. say shoplifting has increased. But but people aren't swiping the latest new sneakers or hot video games. They're stealing things like bread and, and pasta and baby formula. One woman in Maryland says she started sneaking food into her son's stroller. She says she'd take things like beef, rice, and potatoes, but would always pay for other things like M&Ms. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.